0: So I'm writing a novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one man reality show, I'll share with you my ever evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write being a writer and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and sometimes interview people who write fiction. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. Last time, I took you through the outlining of the first new story for the short story cycle novel I'm writing, still untitled, Sword and of Sorcery novel, it's called. Uh, that story was named The Woman Who Floated Through Time. And in it, the protagonist, Vo, basically floated onto the mainland of the world at large, beyond the island where she came from, and had her first little kind of adventure. We're going to go into the story that follows right after that in chronology, but not uh, immediately in sense of linear time. I'll get to that in a minute. It is called Monstrously Slow. That is a title that will likely change... I am somewhat nervous about calling a theoretically fast-moving, exciting sword and sorcery story monstrously slow in much the same way as if I had written like a Keanu Reeves action movie vehicle called 30-minute monologue about drywall. Naming a story you've written something like monstrously slow also feels like a great layup for anybody writing a critique of your story as if I had written that same Keanu Reeves action movie but titled it Third act problems or leaving the theater because I got so bored. (laughs) So why on earth is the holding title potentially actual final title of this short story monstrously slow? Well, it's part of a quote from the chapter of the book that made me want to write this particular story. The book is called simply The Fall of Rome by an underappreciated speculative fiction author named R.A. Lafferty. It was published in 1971 by Doubleday, and it was recommended to me by Lorna Toulis, the marvelous previous head of the Merrill Collection in Toronto, the speculative fiction archive I've mentioned many times and love so much, in 2016. I read it that year, and thank you, Goodreads, uh, for keeping records of things for me. I read it again in 2017, not including rereading it yet again far more recently uh, to just, course, sort of quickly review key parts for my story. There is a lot I love about this telling of a very old story that has been told so many times and will be told so many more times I'm sure. First of all I am charmed by R.A. Lafferty's voice in which he writes this story a little bit of which I will share with you today and depending on how I'm feeling maybe I'll share even more of it after the credits as a little bonus. And I also really love how he just frequently owns in the narrative. He practically turns to the camera and is like, uh, I'm a little stinker. I'm a fabulist. (laughs) I'm weaving myth and fable out of bits of history and filling in big chunks with what i felt like and in that sense he's like many historians over history and the recording of it going all the way back to good old herodotus and i'm sure even earlier but unlike many more self-serious souls who have done this kind of thing he as i said owns it and owns it repeatedly which i appreciate and boy does he make the fall of rome particularly the parts about the gothic boy king alaric and his siblings read like an amazing fantasy novel minus mostly (laughs) minus the magic and demons and whatnot. It is a massively entertaining story that I couldn't recommend more strongly. Uh, The book is currently out of print to the best of my knowledge but I was able to find a somewhat raggedy uh, secondhand copy online pretty easily and if anybody has a near mint copy they want to hook me up with I would love you forever. But yeah, just don't cite it in your term paper or anything, because like I say, he is a fabulist, he is admitting it, there is a lot of stuff just made up, and I knew that when reading because he tells you, but boy did it become super clear to me just how much was being fiddled when uh, this year I read a book called Alaric the Goth, An Outsider's History of the Fall of Rome by Douglas Boyne, which made it very clear just how massive the gaps in our knowledge are about you know what we really truly know about Alaric the goth and his life whereas Ari Lafferty is like yeah here's his whole family I know everything about them and their family relationships here's some private moments that they had like (laughs) how how would he how would he know these things right so perhaps you can already see how I'm getting from this to sword and sorcery which I, I has been described by others and I've quoted them saying it is historical fiction with a twist and boy is this historical fiction this book And uh, the chapter that I particularly love and absolutely made me think of Sword and Sorcery, although there were others as well, is chapter 8, the evocatively titled As Good a Graveyard as Any. It tells the story of a great battle in the year 394 AD, roughly 16 years before the fall of Rome, between the forces of the Christian emperor, Theodosius, and his general, Stilicho, ...warring through a great canyon against a polytheistic and therefore pagan army led by a Frankish count named Arbogast, who was, roughly, to the emperor Eugenius... ...this is what, when you had multiple emperors of Rome, too, as Stilicho was to Theodosius. It was a civil war for the fate of the empire, and Lafferty argues... The fate of Christianity, therefore the long-term fate of all of Europe, given how much Christianity would go on to shape it in the Middle Ages and beyond. Arbogast had cleverly dictated the terms of battle by making Stilicho have no choice but to have Theodosius's forces come to him, and come to him through that great canyon I mentioned, thus Arbogast's forces not only met them face to face in the canyon, they sat up high on either side, happily pelting Stilicho's men with all kinds of arrows and other objects you wouldn't want placed inside your body. Being a history book, it's told from an omniscient perspective that leaps all over the place, however, it focuses mostly on a pairing who will dominate the rest of the book. Master-General Stilicho, and the at this point mostly untested young goth, made Roman soldier, Alaric. Their mentor and mentee relationship doesn't really blossom until later chapters. However, upon rereading, it's impossible not to think of them that way when you read earlier chapters like this one. One of the many things I love about this chapter is how R.A. Lafferty, while weaving his semi historical tale, really makes a point of getting across how unglamorous and bloody difficult war is. And that brings me to the quote that gives this, the third story in my novel, its name. There was a whisper and a cry, and the first gothic foot soldier was transfixed by the first arrow. A German gentleman, in the time of Frederick II, complained that his son had been five years to the wars and had killed for his share only a probable one-fifth of a man. The gentleman thought that the thing should be put on a more efficient footing, but the proportion holds roughly, and has always held. The killing in warfare goes monstrously slow. If every man got his man, there would be none left to tell about it. It is the epics and the presentations and dramas that give the idea that it is an accelerated business, that each man gets a dozen in half as many minutes. Even in a carnage like that in the Valone, the, uh, you know, canyon, and it was a carnage almost without equal, the killing seemed to go slowly. There were perhaps 14,000 Goths strung out, By mid-afternoon, they held most of the 10-mile length of the gulch. They were subject to shot of arrow and catapult and Frankish spear and rocks from above, and they were opposed by a series of barricades which they had to take one by one for 10 miles. The further they advanced, the more they were exposed, for both heights were held by their enemy who shot down vertically on them from 200 feet. There was no question of their finding cover at all. Even the cover of overhanging rocks could be penetrated from the opposite side. The Goths died every inch of the way and on every side, yet it would seem that they died slowly. Should only one die every quarter minute during that 10 mile melee, they would still be one-fourth of them dead by dark. Actually, three-quarters of them would be dead in the lengthy affair." Okay, so yeah, pretty grim stuff, and yes, the killing in warfare goes monstrously slow unlike those epics and dramas that my protagonist Voe was very much raised on. I want to put Vo in that valley. I mean not literally in some sort of time travel nonsense <laughs> but in very much something like this death-filled valley with this massive battle going on and these titanic men of history leading it while you have people who will become perhaps titanic men of history uh running around amongst all the blood men like Alaric a woman like Vo still a very young woman at this point in her big narrative that I am telling maybe at this point she's twenty twenty one instead of 19 when we first meet her but yeah she still has a lot to learn and I think I want her to learn some big lessons while being caught up in a massive battle like this and who better to teach her those lessons than perhaps her own mentor not a great general like Stilicho but certainly someone who understands warfare and how the killing goes so how do we get Voe into this place well one of the things that's really great about writing this as a sword and sorcery novel rather than and perhaps a work of historical fiction is that I have the freedom to leap up and down and all around the hypothetical timeline, right? Because the second story, The Woman Who Floated Through Time, it's very much about a early to mid-middle-ages scholar trying to rediscover plumbing by way of an archaeological dig site over somewhere that essentially the ancient Romans, although I don't call any of them these things, this is what's inspiring me, obviously, uh, where the ancient Romans had once had plumbing, And so then to take her from that story and go into the next one, which is rooted absolutely in a battle that took place right at the end of antiquity, well, that wouldn't make any sense now, would it? But it can make sense in my sword and sorcery nonsense! Hurrah! I can really see why R.A. Lafferty enjoyed taking liberties! It sure is freeing! So okay, that takes care of time, what about space? Because you see, in my mind there's always this rough map of our world that I'm moving Vo around, even though it doesn't make a lot of sense if you think about it too hard. Like, the very first story in my head took place roughly in the Shetland Islands, all the way up at the top of the UK. The second story in my mind took place roughly somewhere in northern France, which Vo floating along in her little wee boat would be unlikely to reach if she had never stopped anywhere else along the way. And then this story, because of what it's rooted in, in my mind, takes place roughly in northern Italy. And I want Vo to be a soldier in my, you know, quote-unquote, Roman Empire here, or perhaps one side of it. I haven't even decided yet if the battle will be a civil war or what, because that simply isn't important for the story I'm telling. Well, I rather like the idea that at the end of the story, the woman who floated through time. Bo is in a tricky place she barely kind of sort of speaks the language of where she has landed she has no money (laughs) or not very much and she doesn't really know the world at large and she doesn't actually really know how to fight she knows how to brawl and she has a real knack for it but she hasn't actually learned like proper fighting skills from anybody and so the characters that she's helped out there are like well Uh, We don't have a lot in the way of resources, but maybe you could fight in our kingdom's army and you would get, therefore, food and training and pay to help you along your way. Because, sure, you've got your big quest to try and find the wizard who trapped your people on the island all those centuries ago, but you gotta eat. Now, I want Vo to be on the same side as her mentor, for pretty obvious reasons, and I really want her mentor, for stuff I'll get into, to be on the side of some grand empire not a a sort of smaller medieval kingdom trying to rediscover plumbing. So, I rather like the idea that maybe we have a gap, as we so often do in these grand sagas of sword and sorcery characters with their linked together short stories, a gap between the woman who floated through time and this monstrously slow, where she fights for that army for a little while, but then this empire beats them, beats them bloody and captures Vo and presses her into serving in their army. And she's been doing that for a little while, maybe a few months, maybe even a whole year, when we join her at this grand battle for the fate of all things, where she is spotted uh, by a more experienced soldier who chooses to mentor her. And so... Already we're at a point where I can better explain why Vo in stories down the line really knows how to fight and will even have some idea of how to lead a small army. Serving in the Empire's army, full of all kinds of people from all over the world, as they understand it at least, will also give me a nice reason for Vo to be much better at language from this point moving forward. Certainly the tongue of the kingdom she was serving before the Empire scooped her up, and then she's serving this empire with people from all over what they consider the world, and therefore you can pick up all kinds of bits and pieces of language from others. In this and other ways, I am setting her up to become the much more traditional sword and sorcery protagonist that I want her to be from the middle of the book onward. So, okay, what's this story going to be about in a sense of what's the big idea? What's the thematic statement, the thing I am claiming and trying to persuasively argue through the telling of the story? I knew deep down that I didn't want to do a war is hell story. I didn't want to do a war is glorious story. I didn't really want to talk about war. I just wanted war to be this big, crazy, chaotic scene and setting. Where Vo could learn some things, not just the upgrades to her skills and so forth I've already described, but some important life lesson. Lo and behold, Twitter saved the day. Yes, <laughs> I wasn't really sure. I was kind of brainstorming and thinking and so on and so forth. And then I took a break to you know go over Twitter and I saw someone doing that thing where people are like, man, I wish I saw more of XYZ in stories. Oh, well. and bless them someone said yeah why don't we see more stories more fantasy stories in particular which discuss the idea that warriors deserve love and care too even though they are big tough folk who fight and punch and so forth they deserve love and care warriors deserve love and care too two words in that really stuck in my head the first was love thinking about how young Vo is, how inexperienced of the world, and how her head is full of big romantic stories, not just in the sense of, you know, romance between two people, but just a broadly speaking romantic notion of the world and how it works and all that stuff. I felt like if she had a mentor who was male, uh, Vo being straight, that she would be very likely to think that his interest in mentoring her has to come from a romantic place. And I like the idea of one of the things that she learns in this story is that No, it doesn't, and that platonic love can happen between people of the opposite sex who are heterosexual. The other word from that simple sentence uh, was deserve. I've been thinking a lot about the word deserve, and in fact, I'm taking something I want to play with with that idea for a test drive in a short story that, as of this recording, I'm almost finished the first draft of. Maybe I'll talk about it in an episode of this at some point. Point being, deserve and what I want to do with it as a concept helped me see the point-of-view character, which I felt should be Vo's mentor, a lot more clearly. I figure if this is a career army man, then he would be very big on the idea of deserving. It's very important to him that you earn things, right? If you deserve something, it's because you've earned it, because you have fought well, because you have followed orders, because you have made great achievements on the battlefield and off, right? And yet. There is this Ursula K. Le Guin quote from her excellent novel The Dispossessed which I will read as follows. This is a character in a kind of big scene near the end, but it's not spoilery, who is making his thoughts known on the concept of deserving. The character says this. For each of us deserve everything, every luxury that was ever piled in the tombs of the dead kings, and we each of us deserve Nothing, not a mouthful of bread in hunger. Have we not eaten while another starved? Will you punish us for that? Will you punish us for that? Will you reward us for the virtue of starving while others do not? No man earns punishment. No man earns reward. Free your mind of the idea of deserving, the idea of earning. And you will begin to be able to think. Not a bad quote, huh? Yeah, I like that. I like the idea that deserving is essentially a fake idea, and if you get too hung up on who deserves what, it's kind of a thought prison that will make you very unhappy. And so... I am thinking maybe our mentor can teach Vo something beyond, you know, skills. He can teach her that, yeah, warriors deserve love and care too, which is essentially a way of unteaching toxic masculinity, which I think even a woman can fall prey to, particularly Vo, who is, you know, all warriored up over here with her ideas about how to solve problems at this point in her life. And Vo could maybe then build on that lesson and ultimately by the end turn it around and teach her mentor that everybody deserves love and care essentially or really the deserving period is a fake idea and you should just love and care for people never mind deserving so that really feels good to me i love the idea of our hero learning something and then building on it turning around and teaching our protagonist for this story right the mentor something on top of that excellent Ooh, that feels good all right let's keep going So okay, the fall of Rome and this chapter within it gives me like a lattice work for the battle itself, a basic shape, as well as many neat details, uh, maybe even some sayings I can play with and rip off, I don't know, I haven't decided yet, it is technically history, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We know Vo will be a frontline fighter wielding her warhammer, probably among the heavy mace men who are usually uh, assigned to break the spears of opposing soldiers uh, that are being used by cavalry or footmen or whatever, um perhaps uh, clearing a path for the cavalry of the empire, whom Spearman caused so much trouble for. Logically, her mentor would then be a mace wielder, not much older than her, I don't think, but perhaps he's been in the army in some capacity since he was a boy, fetching arrows for archers, or some other menial support role. So, he's a mentor to her. Why do people like to mentor? It helps them feel less lost in the world, I think, reassures them they know something of value and therefore they themselves are of value, are deserving. It allows them to pay it forward as thanks to their mentor or mentors from the past and it can help older mentors feel younger or at least still in touch by having regular contact with a younger mentee. And I suppose teaching others helps keep the same life lessons fresh in their mind. I mean, there's nothing for learning like teaching, right? Also, It just straight up feels good. Well, those are the broad reasons that people mentor. But why would our mentor figure want to mentor though? What makes her stand out? Well, as ever, I mean, she has her big warhammer that she made and has with her, a distinctive strange weapon. She has her size, big and brawny, will make you stand out in any army. And her unusual way of speaking, I mean, she's going to have a funky accent or something, even if her language skills have improved by this point. This would be perhaps make our point of view mentor guy notice her but what might she do that would make him have to mentor her is it that she'd look lonely or would her talk of a grand quest you know uh, so Vo made a vow to get a wizard uh, intrigue him sure but that's still mostly novelty with even a little pity I don't really like that what could she do to prove her worth within this guy's, you know, value system of earning and deserving. I thought about it and I remembered something from my own life, the kind of story from so early in one's life that you sort of remember it, but really what you remember is your parents telling you about it a few times. And this is a story of little four-year-old, maybe five-year-old Oliver, just learning to skate. Ah, what a good Canadian. And I was on the rink and I was sort of far down the rink from my mum, who was not a confident skater, she would just hang on to the side of the rink. And she was therefore not close enough to interfere with something kind of wretched that started happening, which is where this complete jerk, I'm trying not to curse too much in this podcast, but let me tell you, if this was you and me sitting in a bar, I'd use some other words to describe him. This complete jerk, a guy named Anton. He was a parent uh, of another kid who was charging around on the thing. And... He was uh, just a bit of a sadist. Uh, He really liked the idea of trying to quote unquote teach hard lessons to kids, but he did it in a way that was like, bit somewhere between jerky and outright abusive. And he was trying to teach me a cool lesson where he kept blocking my way and trying to get me to like, I don't know, practice some kind of hockey move, like, you know, hip check him or whatever. But I'm a four or five year old kid. I'm just ricocheting off this grown man. And most kids i you know so the story is told to me probably would have gotten fed up with him cried uh gone to their parents or whatever now i'm not saying i was a brave person or a smart person my whole point is that i was neither uh what i was was incredibly stubborn and uh, angry <laughs> and i just kept coming at him it didn't matter how many times i was just bouncing off this jerk's knees uh, i just couldn't Get over how much he was angry at me, and I the thought of just skating away never even seemed to occur to me, until finally my mom came over, and interfered, at which point the guy was like, "Huh, you know, I actually kind of respect your kid because he never stopped ricocheting off of me. What, you a, know, he's a man. Er. Yeah. Anyway, you can tell how I feel about this looking back." And it's a story that's stuck in my head. I think about it sometimes in life when I'm like, am I bad at realizing when I should maybe move around or walk away from something? (laughs) Am I just ricocheting off of Anton's goddamn knees again? (laughs) And yeah, and so where does this play in with Vo? Well, I'm thinking, thinking maybe Vo kind of needs to learn to be a little more than someone who just bashes themselves against the problem, trying to brute force right through it. So maybe we have a scene back at the soldiers camp taking place in a lull between the big pushes of the battle where Vo is wrestling with a fellow soldier a guy even bigger than her or maybe just super stocky with like a low center of gravity and she is just bouncing off of him over and over and our point of view guy he watches and he admires her persistence thinks that the stocky guy is a kind of a dick uh, for not just ending the match, and addresses this by telling Vo a wrestling move to undo the stocky guy, a way to kind of get him on his back uh, or whatever. Then she goes over to the mentor guy, they get chatting, and the relationship is off to the races. Okay, so what are the arcs for POV mentor guy and Vo? what is the story here to say? Well, I've already talked about the deserving thing, so I think uh, I'll just quickly say Vo is learning that just because you're you know, hard doesn't mean you don't deserve love and caring. Basically, she's unlearning toxic masculinity and maybe even trying to lose uh, the first chunks, because uh, she'll hold on to this a bit longer, but the whole chosen one narrative, which I personally am not very fond of, uh, maybe this could be the beginning of her unlearning that as well. Cool. Meanwhile, the mentor, who is our protagonist for this story, let's say he's Maybe he's self-conscious for his age and lack of an even higher rank. You know, maybe he's like, you know, actually, I said earlier, he's not much older than Vo, but maybe let's make him even older still. Let's make, with her being twenty let's make him like 38 or something. And uh, so at this point in the army, uh, he would perhaps be self-conscious for his age and not being a higher rank man than what he is, which let's say is kind of a squad leader. Um, He thinks only his experience and capabilities validate his existence. You know, he teaches Vo what he does, then when he perhaps is demoralized, deeply demoralized later in the story, you know, at the big climax, maybe he could fall to his knees, ready to die, because both his knowledge and body have failed him at a crucial moment in the battle. Maybe he's led Vo's unit into just getting massacred. And then Vo could choose that moment to build on his lesson about, uh, you know, warriors deserving love and caring, by saving him and then telling him that all people have value her empathy comes through and she builds on his lesson and says all people have value all people deserve love and caring regardless of what they can contribute or their successes Mm, the battle could then thunder on around them you know and the slowly being lost all of a sudden I think yeah I kind of want the empire to lose this battle and Vo is shielding him while maybe heavy cavalry are charging all around them, and the only reason they're not getting run down is because they've got like a big outcropping of rock to their backs or something. And we defy war as a metaphor for this story. And by by not making it really about war at all, but about how we all deserve value. And the chaos of war is just a place to tell that lesson. Yeah and the teacher wanting validation from the student coming around, that feels right. By the way, it was at this point, looking at the dates in my journal, um, I actually had taken quite a long time uh, between working on this story, the wrestling scene and her and the mentor connecting there. That came to mind August 21st, 2020. And then a whole bunch of life happened, and I did work on other parts of the novel as well, Uh, took a lot of study notes from various talks I attended, And in May 12th, 2021, so that's August 2020 to May 12th of this year, uh, I just was not working on monstrously slow, and then I came back to it with all this stuff I just said about the mentor being self-conscious for his age and lack of high rank, etc. Keep good notes, because you will sometimes have to take breaks that long. Uh, And the better your notes, the better you'll be able to just reread them and kind of re-download the whole thing into your brain. Yeah. Anyway, so... May 12th, 2021, uh, I have figured out what I've just described to you, and I am feeling I'm at that point. I just, I mentioned this with uh, The Woman Who Floated Through Time. At some point, all the brainstorming and theming and character arcing comes together enough in my head that I think, okay, cool, this is feeling pretty solid now. Let's nail down sort of the basics of storytelling uh, as I feel comfortable doing so. The perspective, third person limited, looking over the shoulder of the mentor figure, perhaps with a little bit of omniscient stuff, maybe an omniscient paragraph at the beginning, to be the big wide camera shot of the, you know, the Grand Canyon or whatever, where this battle is happening, and describe a bit of the stakes and the big people before we zoom in on the ground level, sword and sorcery perspective kind of thing, with the little people. Tense, past, sure, Uh, and then uh, the focus is gonna be on like mentorship, what people are worthy of attention or care, proving yourself, war, making sense of life, sure, My theme warriors deserve love and care my thematic statement which is essentially that we can lose it through our actions but we don't have to earn our humanity with deeds or raw ability or any of that deserving is a fake idea right like Ursula K Le Guin's character in The Dispossessed says and then we have the basic trajectory of the story of our teacher taking in his student Vo and vice versa eventually by the end then flipping around to her teaching him something terms of actual events i like you know to be it from the battle looking like uh, voe's side will lose to them winning to a definite slow grinding loss you know the arcs of our two main characters from pov uh, mentor guy choosing the mentor vo closely to them hitting it off testing Vo, voe giving in to toxic masculinity the pov guy teaching her his most valuable lesson about care and love for warriors her learning a man can love a woman platonically uh battle uh they gotta have some battle in here Vo passes uh, perhaps various tests in battle Uh, POV mentor guy though winds up failing at a key moment and wants to die this will need some foreshadowing of course to make it really resonate but then Vo saves him builds on what he's taught her and the battle flows around them as we fade out yeah yeah all right from teacher to student and then student teaching teacher that's our kind of trajectory with all that stuff I just said happening roughly in the middle sounds good. Then I moved on to the thing I mentioned before uh, with things other than conflict that happen in the story. Relating, finding, losing, bearing, discovering, parting, and changing. I wrote down everything I could think of so far that fit in any of those guys and also tried to use them as writing prompts. Like where could relating happen in this? We've got a mentor relationship, right? They should probably relate to each other a little bit. After that, I filled a page with just all of the sort of story beats and scenes that I'd already thought of in, you know, point form listing, so it's easier for me to refresh myself on this when I come back to it to write the story proper. And then I did what tends to be the second last thing I do when outlining a short story, certainly these short stories for this novel. I did a character breakdown of my point of view guy, mentor soldier, who I still haven't really given a name I just put in uh, still a co because I love the general mentor guy in fall of Rome by R.A. Lafferty and I, later I sort of cheekily wrote well if there's still a co maybe this guy's motion co <laughs> yeah it is bad isn't it yeah I gotta I gotta think about that name I'm just gonna keep calling him mentor guy I think for now and so you know with that I start with well he's as age I'm thinking he's gonna be actually be older so let's say 38 Um, let's say, uh, I wrote, ethnicity, oh, gee, uh, I like the idea of how the Roman Empire was actually made up of a lot of non-white people, something that certain people like to elide over. Uh, You know, I always think about how a person of Syrian heritage was found uh, buried with his family that he kept uh, with him while he served all the way up at Hadrian's Wall in the UK. It's easy to forget the Roman Empire shoveled its citizens and soldiers in particular all around the empire. So, okay, he's what we would call Syrian. Uh, Give him charcoal black eyes, give him uh, fallow sort of caramel tawny colored, you know, aka brown uh, eyes. Uh, I like him having kind of smile creases, make him a little more approachable. Um, You know, figure, I mean, he's a career soldier, let's make him have sort of thickly muscled forearms with crisscrosses of scars on them. I mean, this is a guy who fights regularly with a mace. You know, legs shaped by a lifetime of marching, a, perhaps a hawkish nose, uh, a cleft chin, and let's make him proud of his lack of facial scars, despite all of his frontline fighting. This guy has kept his face purdy. Then I wrote, you know, what do I know about him off the dome? Well, soldier since boyhood, can't imagine doing anything else. You know, maybe he's got a brother who's a blacksmith. That could be a point of relating to Vo, whose mother was a blacksmith. Uh... He's sort of a low tier authority figure what's his rank I'm not sure but you know he's, he's got some respect and he's got some rank uh, for the empire and the church but not a religious zealot he fights for his family back home but hasn't been home in over a decade for all his traveling he's feeling old and perhaps a bit insecure uh, his is not perhaps the dominant culture or ethnicity within the empire uh, neither uh, does he come from the dominant religion. As ever, a uh, Sword and Sword 3 protagonist, I want to make him kind of a, an outsider, even if he's very much been a part of this empire for a long time. If I want to give something paradoxical to this guy, and I do, I would figure it's because he's, you know, capable of great violence, but also tenderness. And this is what comes through in the mentorship, right? He's loyal to this empire, but perhaps the empire conquered his people. And that's why he's loyal to them, because he feels, well, they've earned it. <laughs> they deserve it, they, right? They fought for it. They took it. And he teaches others to value themselves, yet does not value himself beyond his deeds, right? The whole fake idea deserving thing. This is a big part of why I like to try and figure out the themes and thematic statements and stuff in my stories before I get too deep into breaking the protagonist, because I want the protagonist to be an expression of those ideas. And so this often helps me see them a little more clearly, right? Anyway, his emotions, I mean, this is a guy who cares deeply and also is a bit sad, because maybe he's a little self-destructive, has low self-esteem you know maybe even kind of just anxious regarding himself I figure you know if he directs all his worst emotions inward then he can more easily project all of his best outward which is kind of a you know yeah that works for me and maybe he's even got like dad energy in the sense that he's not mad he's disappointed when you don't do what he wants you to which is a fun thing to direct though while working on this I happen to read an old review by Roger Ebert on the film Master and Commander talking about the two main characters in that and there's a line I wrote in the margins here Where uh, Ebert says, both men, the two protagonists in Master and Commander, reveal their characters in teaching the boy, and that is how we best get to know them. I made that note, of course, because that's how I want you to get to know this guy, not through exposition dumps or whatever, but through his relationship to Vo, just a little reminder to myself. What are the attitudes this guy carries through life? Well, I figure this is a guy who would appreciate how this empire that draws people from all over its many conquered territories allows them to fight and work their way up in its army, right? Uh, He would feel it is glorious that they allow a person the opportunity to prove themselves, to earn, uh, right? And if people point out the hypocrisies of hierarchy within the empire, as there always are, He might say, well, there's always room to improve, right? (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, he's he's not going to be convinced the Empire is not a good thing. Then there'd be his anti-toxic masculinity thing is his attitude that just because you're strong enough to take pain doesn't mean you deserve it. You know, warriors deserve love and care, et cetera. That's an attitude. And then finally, I would say, I like, you know, religion's a big part of the fictional, the real fiction, but very heavily fictionalized battle uh, from Fall of Rome. So religion is kind of on my mind with the story as well. I thought, what's his feelings there? Uh, for him, I think religion is wallpaper, but hey man, that's cool if you dig it. And, of course, finally his attitude is that Vo needs a mentor. His values, while well, he values a capacity to learn and ask questions, part of why he tweaks to Vo, who loves to ask questions and has a capacity to learn. Uh, two is the empire is the world. Outside of its borders, doesn't really matter beyond who we're conquering next week. And that everything in life must be continually earned. Those are his values, sure. As for some details about this guy, while well, those tend to be rooted in some kind of quirk or issue, and I do see him being a little insecure and therefore maybe a little vain. So perhaps, before battle, he rubs a, you know, blue or red, some bright pigment along his forearm scars, highlighting evidence of his experience while looking kind of badass. and. The other thing I thought maybe would be that he would have a second, nicer helmet he wears only when important people are inspecting his unit or otherwise passing by. If you ask him, he says it's about showing respect, but as ever, he seeks validation. And maybe this even works the first time we see it, but the second time it's taken as evidence that he's vain. What do we need to know about his background? Well, why did he become a soldier? Perhaps to leave childhood embarrassments behind i mean i imagine him being quite young maybe only 15 when he joined the army and going off to you know prove himself okay what was his big embarrassment well since i've now got the idea that he's got a sibling who's a blacksmith or something like that and that maybe he even connects to my next story uh the boy and the blacksmith which is gonna be my romantic story with the foe well i'd say let's make his embarrassment something that has to do with romance maybe he had a few smaller similar encounters embarrassing involving women in the following years that sort of topped up the feeling like an overly attentive servant and this is part of why he's drawn to the simpler lower stakes of platonic love not to say that platonic love is less than romantic love Just that, you know, minus sex and, you know, is this going to be the person I spend the rest of my life with? I think in general it does feel lower stakes. And I think sometimes people kind of give up on relating to others in certain ways that feel higher stakes uh, or more complex and ah and messy. I've seen it many times, uh, including people who just get really into animals because people are messy. So, okay, let's build on this as we figure out a little bit of his psychology. You know, I feel like Mr. POV Mentor Guy would have grown up with very clear lessons about family and familial love, but craved lessons on romantic love when he was left to figure that out for himself. And he couldn't, really. He could also have craved structure, which his community didn't really provide beyond, let's say, the cycles of agriculture. I imagine he's coming from sort of a more rural place, as most people do in these kinds of settings. The army provided structure, and uncomplicated social relations. Aha! This would be a big part, I think, of why he joined. Okay. And then, finally, well, religion I mentioned a little bit earlier, but let's get into detail with this guy. You know, you'd think he'd be all over it, given his craving for structure and clearly outlined platonic relationships. However, I think maybe it's mostly too abstract for him to connect with, and he's seen too many battle blessings come to nothing. And when they do seem to help, it irritates him how they diminish the accomplishments of the troops. Like, they earned that victory. Who cares if some priest wibble wobbled for a few minutes before we charged in? And three, he would find it a bit suspect that all quote unquote pagan gods can be absorbed into the Empire's monotheistic religion. Yeah, so I do see the Empire as having this big monotheistic religion. I've got a lot of ideas for how it absorbs other uh, pagan quote-unquote religions from the people that it conquers, as many empires have done, not just the Romans. But he wants to fit in and be seen by his men as, you know, on side, so he goes through the motions. Because Vo is an outsider, he's comfortable sharing all this with her. After this, I make a note for future Oliver to wrestle with, which is simply, how can we contrast POV mentor guy at Vo to get to know Vo better? I could spend a lot of time looking at the breakdown of him that I just described and the breakdown I did of Vo, which talked about in length in episode 2 of this podcast, but don't worry, you don't have to go back and listen to it to understand what I'm saying here. But I do find at certain points I would much rather figure out stuff by knocking the action figures together, so to speak, rather than staring at them and thinking hard and making notes. So I leave this question in my notebook with no answer, feeling that I will discover intriguing answers to it, by actually getting into the writing of the story, to wit, let's now go into the final thing I'd like to do in this process I've kind of invented for myself uh, in figuring out these short stories that'll make up the novel as a whole, which is to do a rough, just one sentence more or less per thing, story beat list. You know, the broad strokes from beginning to end, what happens, and so okay, well. Number one, the battle is over for today, back to camp, uh, and inspection, yeah, because I want to have that helmet of, his. you know, the mentors show up, and then I want to have that wrestling moment where he and Vo connect, you know, maybe earlier we even have a little bit of the battle, just to show Vo having a bit of trouble and struggling, you know, where he notices her, but hasn't yet decided that he wants to mentor her, yeah, okay, and then the very second thing that would happen after the inspection thing is the anton scene so to speak that i described with vo bouncing off that guy in the wrestling match this you know the mentor steps in uh vo's like i'm a hero though i don't want to even be in this army and he's like well we're all heroes in our own story <laughs> uh you know then vo's uh, limited language uh is still better than it was in the previous story but you know that can kind of come in and make her almost more vulnerable to toxic masculinity because she is having a difficult time expressing herself and understanding others through words uh, but then our mentor instructs her in discipline and gives her sort of a more healthy relationship to the kind of warrior culture that they're swimming through and his whole philosophy about love and care and warriors, right? And then, uh, I need a middle bit. I know the ending a lot better though. So I skipped down three lines and I'm like, uh, yes, yeah, so that was one through four, uh, nine, uh, Vo assumes the mentor's interest, uh, is something romantic and he clarifies and she kind of learns about that, you know, uh, is, and then, uh, the next day happens. Uh, the helmet uh, is there again to make him look vain this time around. Uh, a priest gives a speech before they go into battle. Uh, stuff happens, battle, battle, battle. Vo shows she's learned some lessons. She's fighting better than she did the previous day, working better with her fellow people in the unit, even the stocky guy she was wrestling with, perhaps. And then it all comes up to our mentor having a big moment. You know, he has been given orders to break a line of cavalry with spears and what have you with his, you know, soldiers and their maces. And he tries a big, cool move Bringing us to the next to last thing where he fails, likely costing his side of the battle, this is the, you know, the butterfly that flaps its wings in California causing a tornado in Japan, this is the, you know, the small little mini battle that is lost but causes a ripple effect so that the whole damn battle of empire versus other empire or whatever collapses uh, slowly but surely and then so we get to the very end where he where he wants to die and Vo keeps him from letting himself be trampled by the enemy cavalry pulling him to shelter behind a big rock holds him still and telling him you don't have to earn the right to live the big emotional you know explosion and her really connecting him with him in like a deep empathic loving way that is platonic and so the student teaches the teacher Huzzah! So what about that middle, Oliver? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm still kind of thinking about that. I'm considering this outline done for now, because I feel like in the middle I want action of some kind, but what? And that action, well, it's gonna need its own little beginning, middle, and an end, so I gave it three lines, five, six, and seven in my list of, of story beats, broad strokes here. Uh, I found every time I tried to figure out what it was, when I was working on this back in the end of May of this year, I kept being like, oh, I should just stick a wizard in there or some kind of magic somehow because I, I should. And that made me concerned. I was looking at it from a ticking boxes on the genre checklist point of view, which is not a great headspace to be in. So instead, I just went the heck with this and I worked to the bottom and I made a few notes about names and culture and like what could be some guiding stuff for me when I come back to this to you know, design in more detail the empire and who, what the names of everybody should be so that our mentor figure at the very least can get a better name <laughs> uh, than Moshiniko instead of Stiliko. Oh, that's so bad. And, you know, I made a few more notes about like, well, maybe I kind of want a mini adventure for them to bond over in the middle here, maybe like a night raid. Uh, maybe there's uh, some sort of magic or horror or maybe some kind of re-enchanting the world, something strange and crazy that makes the world bigger and more beautiful. Maybe that could be just the landscape and them moving through it By night, something for future Oliver to figure out because Oliver of May 22nd, 2021 wasn't in the right headspace. And I think it's okay to just say to yourself, yeah, I got to come back to this later, but it's pretty done for now. If it's done enough for me to feel comfortable moving on. And now here I sit speaking to you, recording this on August 8th, 2021. I have finished outlining the entire first third of the novel, including, of course, then the story that comes right after this, The Boy and the Blacksmith, and the story that comes after that, Disgrace the Stone, the big turning point between our first third of the novel where Vo is figuring herself out and sort of half-unwittingly becoming a sword and sorcery protagonist, and I do feel somewhat validated about leaving alone this soft middle to, to discover and figure things out later, working on other stories that I can then maybe think about and come back and figure out that middle, because I had never planned it, but in figuring out the next few stories, the family of the mentor figure wound up playing a big role in Voe's life that I hadn't been thinking about up to that point. So please join me next time when I will talk us through how I figured out the boy and the blacksmith, the romance story for young Vo taking place in and around the home that our soldier mentor figure from this story left to go fight in the Empire. So I'm writing a novel features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an MP3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy. Using your phone is fine. Just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing, at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on iTunes, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Lefford. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll see you soon.